There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. I'm going to create more waste because I'm worried some yucko stuck his butter knife in the ketchup before I got there to order my pork roll sandwich. It's so awesome when one or both of your clients is leaning so far to one side of the boat that one of your oars will not touch the water. You're doing line class records to try to make a big name for yourself. It's garbage. I didn't get the stream name. Can you tell me the stream name again? <laughs> pa hey, hey, hey. It's the stream. <laughs> Good morning, Degenerate Anglers. Welcome to Bent, the podcast that thinks your ability to make interesting conversation in the boat and always show up on time matters more than your proficiency with a rod or the size of your tackle box. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and amen to that, man. I will, I'll take an interesting <laughs> fishing buddy over an experienced one every single time. Right? Yep. Right? But to, yep. Look, to, to be clear, to be clear, I'm not advocating ignorance. Right, if if we've been fishing together for I don't know like five years and you haven't bothered to learn how to tie on a leader or back up a trailer, then you're just lazy or not actually that interested in fishing. In yeah, which case, that strong that. chance I wouldn't I wouldn't be fishing with you for five years. Like I would have given up on you a lot sooner than five years. But, but anyway, theoretically, but, for the sake of argument, if you haven't figured sake, it out by for then, for the sake of argument, you, you I'm a big fail. sake of the argument guy. Exactly. So I got to say that part of what I love about my job, I always have, is that I've gotten fish with many different people and get mm -hmm. exposed to just tons of different approaches in different places, different rigs and techniques. Um, but the flip side of that diverse fishing experience is that I'm constantly shown how little I, I actually know. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm, mm -hmm. I've never been afraid to suck at a particular kind of fishing. So long as at the end of the day, I've learned something, whether I could be a new knot or a new rig or even just the the habits of, of fish that maybe I don't target very often. So I feel like very well versed in a broad sense, but you, you get away from what you do and it's, it's very shocking how little you actually know. Oh you know yeah. I mean? And you only figure that out by going and doing new things. Yep. Right. Like I, yep. the most recent example I have is fishing with you for shad. I'd never seen a shad before in my life and trying to figure out how to work 
those shad darts and like figure out the current and all the different things that you showed me was yeah. was a nice moment of realization. Like I can figure all this stuff out. I can do it, but I don't know it. And had I been sure. dropped there on my own, I, I right. wouldn't have been able to. Like I, I, I think one of the things that I have learned, the more fishing I've done in the more places I've learned that I just, I suck at a lot of kinds of fishing. <laughs> I'm 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 a pretty good learner, but I, there are only certain things that I'm truly good at, and right. I'm hoping that with this particular episode that we've laid out, that we maybe I I don't know I hope we encourage a few folks to feel comfortable sucking a little bit. Like I hope by us stepping out and saying like, "Hey, we suck at a lot of stuff when it comes to fishing," and that's okay. I I hope other people will take a cue and be willing to do that. But I am I'm I'm slightly hesitant about this week's theme. I got to say. Are you really? A little. Huh. Like, I'm not losing sleep. This isn't, it's not the main thing that's keeping me up, but I'm just, I truly, and I think you get this, I'm not sure how this one's going to land, right? Because we're this. Fair. You're right. Say it, this episode's going to focus on fly fishing, all right? And mm -hmm. we talk about fly fishing on the show all the time, but in the past, Joe and I, we've always made a concerted effort to make sure that we talk about something else too we get some conventional stuff in there yep. we get some ice we get we've never gone straight fly before no no that's true and i i think what miles is getting at is is that we have a we have a pretty broad mix of anglers right who listen to this show and we say all the time that we welcome everyone here at bent who likes to fish yep. so long as you're you're thoughtful and ethical about it you're not like a dirt bag out there um but we don't we we certainly don't want to alienate anybody but the fly thing, it can be kind of polarizing. We know that some of you are are dedicated fly folks. Some of you dabble with fly gear, or at least you know you're a little bit interested in it. And some of you are either completely unfamiliar or just outright like anti fly. Yeah. And that's okay. We still we like all of you. That's totally. all okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. And and we hope that at least a couple people will hear this and and maybe feel a little differently if perhaps you're on the anti side. But the thing is it's June. And it is. And June, where I live, like all I think about when it comes to June is is, is rivers just boiling with hatching insects, and mm -hmm. every fish in every one of those rivers is is chowing on those insects. Yep. And I have been, you know, when I've been out on the rivers, I have fished dry flies off and on for a few months. But right now, this particular this week is like the beginning of the prime time. So, in the spirit of that, we were thinking we might spread a little unapologetic love for floating flies and surface feeding trout because it's fun. Yeah, and the thing is, we know there's, there's going to be some of you who are understandably skeptical about yes. this, right? I mean, we look, we work at Meat Eater, right? <laughs> Steve Ranella didn't build his fan base advocating for dainty dry flies and precious trout. No. But even, even no. Steve will pick up the long rod from time to time and admit how much goddamn fun it is, right, or can be, yeah. um, you know, even, even if he's not a huge fan of, of fly fishing culture. That's true. That is you've true. seen this, right? I have seen him do it with my own two eyes. It's yep. that is all true. But I think before we we continue with our attempt at a, a full throated appeal for why fly fishing is fun and not necessarily annoying or obnoxious, we do want to remind all of you out there that uh, this show is brought to you by Thirteen Fishing. It is, and that's that's a little awkward. It's a little awkward. 13, 13 doesn't actually make any fly rods, at least not yet. So not yet. That. Uh, they don't yet, but even in, in the heaviest insect hatch and dry fly fun, I still have an Omen black casting rod at the ready in my boat, rigged up with the swim bait or a jerk bait. 
Because mm-hmm. here's, here's a little tip. Here's a little tip for everybody out there. While the small and medium-sized fish in the river are, are distracted because they're stuffing their faces on teeny tiny bugs, sometimes like the really big fish take advantage of the, mm-hmm. the smaller fish being distracted. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. after I've cast some flies through a pool for a while and, and, and had my fun, I'll usually pick up the short stick and huck some kind of a big bait in there a few times just to see if, if Walter P. Brownshout or maybe <laughs> an opportunistic smallmouth or pike is feeling a little frisky. I've had yeah. that work out well in the past. Absolutely. That's a, it's, it's a great tip, man. And I, I may not agree about which hand we reel um, with on a bait caster, right? Because I'm a, I'm a righty. I'm a right-hand retrieve guy all mm. the way, right? Wrong. Which wrong. I, I And I've been called out for it recently. People are like, why is your, your handle on the wrong side? I'm like, I didn't switch hands yet when the photo was taken. Damn you. I cast right and reel right. I do the switch. Uh, but anyway, we do both agree that there, there's nothing wrong with bringing a, a conventional rod on a fly fishing trip. Yeah. Lord knows I do it all the time. Me too. All the time. Or it go, you know? it go, it go the other way too. There's nothing wrong with bringing a fly rod on a conventional trip. Yep. That's fine oh, yeah. too. And for those of you out there feeling unsure, we're just trying to give you license to go for it. Give it a shot. Go for it. Just do try it. it out. Getting into long rod doesn't have to be intimidating, even though some people make it out that way. It's, it's not that hard. And going fly fishing it doesn't mean that you like got to wear a tweed jacket with with elbow patches or whatever, or like a, a felt hat, which I think is stupid. And you don't have to extend your pinky while drinking a beverage. <laughs> you don't have to do any of those things. One last point, fishing a fly rod does not make you any less of a degenerate. It's true. I do wear the tweed and the felt hat. I choose <laughs> to do so. But that doesn't mean that that you have to. My tweed's actually getting tight. I need bigger tweed. Uh, anyway, that was all true. And it's okay to bring a fly rod and not use it. Or only use it if the situation is right, right? Yeah. Right? And I think when I fish saltwater, I rarely go inshore saltwater fishing without a fly rod. But I never go with only fly rods. Right. I just don't do that. And if the situation presents itself to get some mahis or stripers on the fly... It's like a total bonus, and I might fly fish all day, but I'm, I'm never going out there with just that stuff, right? So anyway, today we, we've kind of assembled a cast of motley characters, all of whom are both professional fly anglers and exactly the kinds of people you just want to sit around a fire and drink whiskey with. Absolutely. They're, yep. all, they're all legitimately interesting, good folks. We're going to start things off with our friend Alvin Dado, who we've had on the show many times before. But in case you forgot, Alvin is a, a former frontman for the Austin-based funk band Bad Mother Goose and the Brothers Grimm, <laughs> who started working in a fly shop during the day to help pay for his rock star lifestyle. And that led him down the guiding path, which is what he's been doing full-time now for decades. Uh, Alvin's home water is the lower Colorado River around Austin, where he just puts a hurtin' on the largemouth and, yeah. and the Guadalupe bass and the white bass and all kinds of other stuff. I've done it with him. It's, it's super fun. But... He also guides for redfish down on the coast, and he's spent many, many years chasing trout in the Rockies. So yep. he's well-rounded. Yep, bottom line, yeah, Alvin knows his shit, okay? And today he's here for our Smooth Moves segment, where we let guides, outfitters, shop workers, and anyone else who makes a living in the fishing industry tell stories about stupid or hilarious things that clients do. But this one is more instructive than most, yeah. I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, a lot of times we're just making fun of people, but Alvin actually came with a, a useful, functional suggestion. Anytime you find yourself fishing out of a small boat, particularly someone else's boat, 
this is this is going to help you. And I, I really enjoyed recording this one. I, I had a good time. I kind of forgot the mic was even on. We were just bullshitting. <laughs> if you've ever wondered what fishing guides talk about after everyone leaves, it, it kind of sounds like this. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Karen? Oh, my God. This move doesn't really have a name, but it has uh, a solution. It has a, a, you know, there's there's a cure for this move. And the cure is center up. Get in the middle of the boat. <laughs> this is one that just anybody that yep. rows a boat, I know pulls this a one. boat, pushes a boat. You got to stay in the middle of the boat. I mean, it's 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 so awesome when one or both of your clients is leaning so far to one side of the boat that one of your oars will not touch the water. <laughs> you know, you got that one. It's like digging in, and the other one's like catching air because the boat's like on its gunnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a constant one, you know, like, come on, man. In, in, uh, in my, uh, my jet boat, there's a little logo that's on the, uh, on the bench that I have people stand on. And I've been tempted to actually put some rails or something on either side of the logo and be like, <laughs> if you feel that rail under your foot, you need to take a step in the opposite direction. But it's, it's a problem. You could just put down gaffer's tape. In like a little, like, like create a little box, like do not step outside of That's, the gaffer's I, tape. I, I, I've seriously, seriously considered that. I just tell them, look, stay on the logo. Look down every once in a while, make sure you're on the logo. But see, I can take this a step further, right? Because I don't know how many people I've rode. It just happened not too long ago. The dude was perfectly centered because he had no choice because he was in the leg braces on the boat. Mm-hmm. But then we'd set up on a dry fly fish. And he would cast with so much oomph that, like, the entire drift boat would be rocking <laughs> like we were 20 miles offshore. And it's like, dude, I don't understand why you must put so much body energy <laughs> into laying out a dry fly. Like, there's no need for that. You guys have, have, you have to have dealt with that, too. Like, I don't understand it. Just stand oh, yeah. and cast. Why? Why? It's like, dude, I got to get that fly out of there. And if I don't put some body English into it, <laughs> that thing is not going to make it that 30 feet to the bank. I know I'm not going to do it with my arms. I got to do it with my legs. You got to have Everything's it. rattling around. Drinks are coming out of cup holders. Like, <laughs> Lay down the f-ing atoms, all right? Oh, dude, I used to have, a, I used to have this really skinny, uh, one of those... Uh, one of those Arkansas trout boats. It was like 20 feet long, but it was super mm-hmm. skinny. Oh, and, I've been and, on them, yeah. And that thing would rock from side to side. <laughs> you know, I had this one guy in particular, you know, it was, it was like five to six false casts per presentation. And each one was just like, you know, it was like he was trying to knock somebody <laughs> out with these swings. And the boat would, the boat would just rock from side to side so violently that my back would hurt at the end of the day from like me just trying to overcorrect to keep myself in an upright position. Well, I had a client for many, many years. He was a really good client and a good guy, but I, I, uh, I won't use his real name because I don't have to. I just nicknamed him Captain Morgan because ah. he would ride in the back of my boat with his foot perched up on the gunnel the entire time. Just completely throwing that thing off kilter so that I was almost at a 45-degree angle rowing down the yep. river all day. And I would literally have to say, Captain, 
<laughs> Bring it back to center for me, buddy, at least 10 times a day. And he always felt back. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But within 10 minutes, that foot would creep right back up and you'd yeah. be right back on the gun. Uh, dude, I've seen it. It's the creep. They can't help it. It's like, you know, guys who know, like you said, the captain knew he was supposed to stay in the center, <laughs> but it's just like this weird creep thing. It's magnetic. You got to put that foot as far away from the other foot as you can. <laughs> So there you have it, everybody. Hot tip from Alvin Dado. If you really, really, really want to piss off your guide, just keep rocking your body weight from one side to the other all day long. Alvin, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, man. See, now I really think that's something most casual anglers just don't know about or, yeah. or think about. I think like that's centering right. Centering your weight in small boats makes such a huge difference. And as we've discussed... I have, I own the Mini Cooper of drift boats, as you, you called it. So <laughs> having the dude up front centered in, in my boat in particular is extremely important to me. It's like, it's very important because yeah. we might all go in. Okay. It's not just a matter of being tilted. Like we might dump the thing, you know? It's one of those things you're right. Casual anglers don't think about because they don't have to. I had yep. no idea about any of that until I was the one driving and rowing boats all the time. Right. And because other people's sense of where they're standing has impacted my life so much. <laughs> right. Like now yeah. it's just habit. I always yep. keep an eye on weight and balance when I'm in someone else's boat, especially. Yeah. It's like one of those unwritten rules of courtesy that that people who know notice. Yeah. It's just not enough people, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to keep rolling with this. We're going to we're going to keep the the theme here and bring you a fly fishing tackle tip that we also think will be equally helpful. Be forewarned, this this one gets a little technical. It's not difficult. This isn't a hard thing to do. It's just kind of specific, so you got to pay attention. I'm getting hacked. Coming from inside the city. Hide the planet! So welcome back to Tackle Hacks. Joining us today, our friend and uh, Montana slash Washington State guide, Kinsley Scott. Kinsley, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you guys? We are we are great. Uh, we're going to be better after this because you are going to uh, pull from from your many years of experience guiding, um, and you're going to give us a tackle hack today. A little tip, something just a little little nugget for anglers to put in their pockets that will make them better on the water. At least that's the plan. Yes. <laughs> and this one may not be applicable to all trout anglers, but. For us here in Western Montana, our bread and butter are foam dry flies with droppers. That's right. mm -hmm. the majority of our fishing through the entire season, really. So my hack today to improve your dry dropper fishing to make life a lot easier is using a shorter leader. So I run a seven and a half foot leader to my dry fly. Right. And right out of the package, I actually chop off about a foot off the butt section of it. So off I the cut butt the, section? Yes, and I'll explain why. So I cut about a foot off of the butt section, so that welded loop that comes on a leader out of the factory, I retie a perfection loop. So now we'll say my leader is down to about six and a half feet. So it's a pretty chunky taper. What that allows me to do, our fish here in Montana, Western Montana specifically, aren't very line shy, spooky, especially if you're fishing a bigger bug, right? We'll say like salmon fly, golden stone fly season. So with that six and a half foot 
dry fly leader, that allows me to then throw a much longer dropper. So say I throw a four foot dropper to, you know, I have a salmon fly dry and I want to fish a pats below and I want four feet. Right. In total, that would cut my entire leader system down to about 10 and a half feet, which is pretty manageable. Whereas if you were to keep that seven and a half foot leader right out of the package with then a four foot leader, you're pushing about 12 feet of leader in your cast. So if you can shorten that leader section up, it's still going to overturn your fly, but it's going to really compact things and make it a lot more manageable when casting. I love that. Yeah. That's a great tip. That makes a lot of sense. My own, my only critique of that is a lot of the, the dudes I fly fish with couldn't do that because if they cut the perfection loop off, they wouldn't know how to tie a new one. Fair. <laughs> YouTube is great for that. I was going to say, your, your phone will teach you in about 45 seconds. <laughs> exactly. Yes. No, that's a, that's a great tip. I, I wish that I had done that when I was, uh, when I was guiding because it would have probably saved me a lot of tangles that I had to pick apart for the next, oh, 45 minutes or so. Yes. So next time you're uh, you're out there throwing big dry droppers, chop off the back end of that leader. See how it works. Let us know how you do. Kinsley, thanks so much. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to another tackle hack from you soon. Thank you, guys. See, I told you in a podcast many moons ago, I've been saying all along that all you need to catch fish in Montana is a big-ass chubby. <laughs> And I, that was just confirmed. West, Western Montana. She clearly. Oh, is that what it is? Did you not oh, listen? She clearly specified Western, Western Montana. And she did that gotcha. on purpose because she grew up <laughs> on the Missouri where that's not true. <laughs> and I don't know why, but the trout in Western Montana are dumber. I don't know why that is. But I, I, I am going to try this trick out because I haven't had a chance to do it yet. And we're coming to salmon fly and golden stone season for any, any day now, really. So right, I'm going right. to, I'm going to try this one, but. I was thinking about it, and this rigging, this tip that she gave, I think is more broadly applicable than than Kinsley realized. Mm. Uh, I would suggest that this one's useful for people who are curious about fly fishing but don't live in a place with trout streams. Mm. So, right, right. The, the the rig she was talking about, the big dry fly with the dropper setup, that is mm. sort of a classic out west Rocky Mountain trout setup. Mm-hmm. But right. I actually use something very similar for panfish and bass on lakes. I've adapted that rig for warm water species. And I think that her leader hack would be perfect for that situation. So here's here's my version that I, I suggest you guys try on a lake. Do exactly what Kinsley suggests. Chop that leader to make it a more manageable length. Then to the end of it, tie something big and buoyant. Uh, a small popper fly or a diver, maybe a cicada, right? Hey, maybe. Brood maybe X. a cicada. Hey, and hey. then... Tie a three to four foot section of leader off the bend of the hook, you know, like four, six pound test, something like that. And then put any kind of weighted fly that you like on that. I personally, I'm a big fan of Prince nymphs or hair's ears because they just look a little bit like everything and they'll work really well on panfish or I'll, I'll throw on like a woolly bugger. If I'm after bass, you pitch that thing up toward a weed line in the lake, you let it settle. And then give it short strips with long pauses in between. You'll either get to watch that floating fly get inhaled or more likely the floating fly will just disappear when a fish yep. eats the bottom fly. So yep. seriously, try that out the next time you're, you're lake fishing in shallow water or along weed lines. I, I think you'll be impressed with how well it works. Solid tip, man. And like a blind side for me has always been still water, uh, trout. 
on the fly. And I, I've, I've done very little of that, but I actually got to do it many years ago in Montana on a small lake. And it was the first time I ever threw dries on still water for trout. And dude, it was a blast. Yep. I must say like, it's a totally different game. Yeah, you, you've done it. So you know what I'm saying? It's like these fish are cruising. So you're just kind of letting your stuff bob around out there and like ride the wake and ride the, 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 the ripple. And they just come out of nowhere and slurp it. You can't really target them like a head in a river. So much fun. So much fun. But, um, it's a, it's a lot of useful information today. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with us. So I know we're actually we're actually we're actually having we have value today. Um, and we're going to keep that going right now. Our, we're going to keep our value up as we head into fish news. Fish news that escalated quickly. So I have one uh, shout out this week before we get going on news. Uh, going out to listener Eric Halfman, and this is a response to our last. Uh, that's my bar segment where we yep. wax nostalgic about ketchup and glass bottles. Yep. And Eric totally validated me on this one. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Okay. But I have more to say about it. Okay. <laughs> so we talk about how you don't see that anymore. And and in that, in that, that's my bar. I brought up the butter knife trick where sometimes you, you start the ketchup in the glass bottle with a butter knife, you stick it in there and get it going, which you said was a childish maneuver. I, s- I said I it was a rookie move. I did. I did. A rookie yep. move. And that's fair. Anyway. Eric wrote in to say, you should never use a butter knife to start ketchup in a glass bottle because according to the servers in a bar near him that also uses glass ketchup bottles, if someone sticks a butter knife in the bottle, the bottle is now deemed unsanitary and tainted and must be thrown away. Yep. Now, I, I, I will admit that I, like many of you, probably never considered this, okay? I, I didn't. And I no, get it. I, I admit I didn't I didn't consider that. Like that is a much stronger argument than my stupid like, oh, that's for kids. That that was his is like a legitimate reason. Yeah, yeah. But I still take issue, right? Now you look do. it makes now I do, and I'll tell you why. It makes perfect sense. I get it. But this also feels to me like one of those things people in the 80s and 90s like gave zero shits about. Like there were smoking <laughs> sections on airplanes. <laughs> Children were shooting each other with BB guns instead of Nerf guns, and your dad would help you build the ramp that would allow you to jump the creek on a bike sans helmet. So nobody was worried about a butter knife tainting ketchup. And my point is, while the knife and the ketchup thing isn't wrong, this, I don't know, man, it just feels like a very millennial observation to me. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, (laughs) there's, there's more important shit to worry about. So really, I guess, Eric, thanks Thanks for ruining ketchup in glass bottles, the last bastion of Americana, because now I can't look. This is not Eric's fault. This is not his fault. It's like going to the doctor. I don't have cancer if you don't tell me I do. You know what I mean? So now I'll never be able to look at a glass ketchup bottle and go, oh, man, like what nasty ass stuck their butter knife in there? (laughs) I think you're. So uh, thanks. I I think you're. You're. Your anger here is misplaced. I don't think it's Eric's fault. I don't think it's the I'm server's not. fault. I don't think it's the restaurant's fault. If you want to blame someone, you can blame like the health department for trying to keep you safe. So if that's who you, you I, can get mad I'm, at them. It, it's not really Eric's fault. It's just like, I didn't need to know that. And I'm going to be like, excuse me, do you have single serve packets? I'm going to create more trash. I'm going to create more waste. Because I'm worried some yucko stuck his butter knife in the ketchup before I got there to order my pork roll sandwich. Damn it. Anyway, uh, that's that that's my Thanks, shout Eric. out of the week. You, you have anything good. this week? Or we uh, move I, on. We I think we got to talk about. I think I think we have to talk about the elephant in the playlist. That oh yeah yeah yeah. Phil. Okay, well okay. Well we're gonna get to that because as a reminder, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know 
which news stories the other dude is bringing to the table. And at the end, judgment shall be passed uh, by the mighty Phil, our audio engineer. And what Miles is referring to um, is that Phil has officially contributed now to the Bent Spotify playlist, which many of you guys seem to be enjoying. We can be getting a lot of great notes on that. The numbers are ticking up. You're, you're listening. Um, and if you're not rocking out with this, you can find the link to the playlist in my Instagram bio. But Miles and I were thinking, right, that down the line, maybe we'd start asking show guests time to time to recommend a few tracks that we'll add here and there. But it seemed only right that since we've, we've already discussed Phil's musical taste, we let him throw down some choices. He, and, and did he ever? Man, can you learn a lot from, from having somebody man. create a Spotify playlist for you? And Phil, Phil was all over the place, right? From Wilco to Kanye West to Steely Dan. Don't forget but, heart. Um, heart. There was some heart in it. It was really, it was eclectic, and I like that. And uh, Miles, so we, we whittled it down to three selections of fills that are now officially in the uh, the Bent playlist. The first one being the White Stripes, Girl, You Have No Faith in Medicine. We both agreed on that one. I'm actually a yep. White Stripes fan. I've agreed. always Me liked too. the White Stripes. And kudos to Phil. He didn't, he didn't select really one hit. They were all B-sides. You know what I mean? And I appreciate that. I like that. Now, you chose, this was your pick, Run the Jewels, Goonies vs. E.T. I don't know anything about Run the Jewels. Oh, come on. Killer Mike? You got no. You got to love it. Anyway, yes. That's some classic, classic conscious Atlanta hip-hop right there. <laughs> so, okay. So, finally, we went with um, Mexican Wine by Fountains of Wayne. That was that was my choice. And I selected yeah, I, that I because- not, I don't- I don't know about that. And you're not a Fountains of Wayne guy, but I was a fan of their first album. Um, they had a song called Sink to the Bottom. I want to sink to the bottom. And I rocked out to that, right, uh, when I was a wee lad. And the first time I ever heard it was when they played it live on the Jenny McCarthy show. Oh, do you remember God. the Jenny McCarthy show, dude? Sadly, I do. Yes. It was awful. But that is where I, I, I discovered uh, Fountains of Wayne. So anyway... <laughs> Uh, if you hear those tracks pop up, you now know they are from Phil, who, upon being asked to contribute, said, and this is a direct Phil quote, this is probably the least consequential thing I've done at Meat Eater, and I've never felt more pressure. So, <laughs> damn right pressure, you should. The pressure is now judgy. off, Phil. You've done good. We, you your, well. your songs are in. The pressure is now on Miles, as it is uh, your leadoff for news this week. Hit me. Ooh, all right. Okay. Pressure's on. See how I do. Uh, my first one's going to come. This comes from my original home state, where okay. the Board of Land and Natural Resources is clearly not messing around. Mm. All right? Do not mess around in Hawaii, and you'll you'll hear about that. This will make sense in a second. So last month, they issued the largest fine in state history for an aquatic resource violation, a six. $133,840 fine was issued to Ooh. a Hilo man who dumped and poison into Pa stream in order to kill and collect huge quantities of Tahitian prawns for illegal sale. I didn't get the stream name. Can you tell me the stream name again? <laughs> pa is the stream. Okay, got it. There you go. You got it? Did you get the, yep. you get the accent yes, marks? I took in a there? note. Yes, I did. Tahitian prawns are not native to Hawaii. Despite their misleading name, the species is found throughout East Africa, the Indian Ocean, and Indonesia, and then over into the Marquesas Islands. Hawaii state workers introduced Tahitian prawns into two streams on two separate islands, Molokai and Oahu, in 1956. Fifteen years later, 
The prawns were found in 42 different streams on every single Hawaiian island. Wow. Ooh. And though humans are responsible for the original introduction, the spread and proliferation occurred without any help. Because after hatching, Tahitian prawn larvae wash out to sea, where they spend a month growing and molting. And just before reaching maturity, the young prawns seek out whatever fresh water source they can find and make their way upstream, where they spend the remainder of their lives. And this life cycle makes them exceptional colonizers. And that's how they got everywhere. Fascinating. So it's not like steelhead that go to the same stream. No. Like they'll just find the closest fresh water. They just spread out. Yep. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. And so, so they've been common residents of most freshwater systems in Hawaii since the 70s. And they're, they're considered invasive as they may compete with native shrimp and prawns, but their impacts have, have not been closely studied. So no one's sure how bad of a deal they are. And since they've been around for 50 years and everything hasn't collapsed, they kind of sort of like they're not that bad. But right. harvest is allowed. And the Department of Land and Natural Resources has no bag limits on Tahitian prawns. You can take as many as you want. Common and legal methods of take include nets, spears, and spotlights. But dumping a bottle of poison into the water and then scooping up all the dead prawns as they float downstream is both illegal and incredibly destructive. Unfortunately, this practice seems like it's starting to become common, or at least common enough to draw significant attention and resources from mm -hmm. the Hawaii DLNR. Because people like prawns, right? Like, prawns are good. Yeah, we have on the grill. On Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the legal methods of prawn hunting can yield... Seems like, from what I can tell, can yield like a big meal in a few hours of collection. You can get a couple mm -hmm. dozen. But poachers can just dump a bottle of ant poison in a stream and, and get like 50 to 100 pounds or more in minutes. And then they take those fresh prawns and they sell them on the roadside and they make quick cash. Poisons like that kill indiscriminately and they have long-lasting negative impacts. According to state biologist Troy Sakihara, the illegal and unethical use of these pesticides in streams have shown to cause extremely damaging and long-lasting effects into all aquatic stream animals, native and non-native. These pesticides are highly toxic to all aquatic animals and result in extensive recovery time, particularly for native and endemic stream life. Typically, non-native and invasive species are the first to repopulate these impacted areas. Therefore, mm. these types of activities can severely alter the natural biological conditions and overall health of the stream ecosystem. So real bad is what he's saying. Yeah. And beyond decimating the stream life, this practice is also dangerous for the people who consume the poison yep. shellfish, right? That's like you're just buying thinking. prawns yeah. off the side of the road. It's full of ant poison. You don't know. Yep. Yep. So all this is to say that cracking down on this practice has become a high priority for, for the Hawaii DLNR. Last July, enforcement officer Edwin Shishido got an anonymous tip about one such incident, Shishido knew that he had an opportunity to make an impact. And so he spent the next two months building this case. He partnered with the Division of Aquatic Resources and the Department of Agriculture to collect water, soil, and prawn samples, all of which tested positive for benethrin, a, a toxin commonly found in commercial insect poisons. He tracked down eyewitnesses and like he just spent a ton of time on this. He was ultimately successful yeah. in prosecuting the offender whose actions resulted in the death of approximately 6,250 Tahitian prawns, in addition to who knows how much other aquatic wildlife. Sure. The guy who got fined $1,000 per dead prawn 
$200 for unlawful use of poisonous substances, plus another $8,640 to pay for the overtime that Officer Shishido and the other staff put into the case. The chair of the Hawaii Board of Natural Resources said at sentencing, this very significant fine lets illegal fishers know that we take these matters very, very seriously. Responsible citizens acting as witnesses and our officers are watching streams closely. And if you're engaged in these types of activities, eventually the law will catch up with you. This kind of illegal and extremely harmful fishing behavior, collecting prawns and streams using poison is unacceptable and we will enforce it at every turn. And I just, I wish all poaching and wildlife cases were prosecuted this way. Yeah. Right. Because so often the story ends with the offender, like there's this whole thing and then the offender gets a nominal sanction or like a little fine. And I think that ends up doing far more harm than good because the message from those cases, is it's not that big a deal. That breaking fish and wildlife laws is really not that big a deal. So people keep doing it. If, If on the other hand, conservation officers are allowed and encouraged to prioritize catching offenders and hit them big fines like this that also include the cost of overtime that all the people who caught them put into it. I think that might actually make people think twice. So I'm, I'm shouting out, I'm applauding Hawaii DLNR and especially officer Shishido for, for this one. I think, I think this is a job really well done. Dude, I think I think it's amazing, and man, there's there's going to be a lot of connections between stories today. We've done some 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 things in similar veins, and I, I completely agree. The thing is, like, <laughs> the fine is what it is. Dude's got to pay it, and I mean, you know, sometimes you're dealing with people in these cases that don't have a ton of money, and it's like, well, you can you can lay that fine on a guy. It doesn't mean that the state's going to get all that money out of it. That's the no. deal. Um, you know, and there's actually similarities here on the mainland. I feel like we've talked about it in this show at one point, but I had a, a good buddy who was a veteran guide on the Salmon River out here. And back in the Wild West days of poaching, that wasn't uncommon to have these salmon run up these little side tribs, and dude would dump a 10-gallon bucket of bleach in, and the other dude would stand at the bottom with a pitchfork. Really? Like that happened, like, in New York State. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh. that was a thing that people used to do. So the idea of poisoning a run like that to get what you need is – it happens – elsewhere and that's the same deal so then you're selling these salmon that like smell like bleach and their gills are white and it's like who wants to freaking <laughs> eat that i will say though i know i know those prawns are are invasive but i've seen stuff on tv like the legit guys that do it with the flashlights yeah. and the real small spear gun it's like a yeah. little like needle dart uh-huh. i think it's cool as hell like so i would love cool. i would like to try that no you know? I, the only reason i haven't done it is because i grew up on oahu and I, I I know that there are clean streams on Oahu where you can do this and feel comfortable about it. I don't know which ones they are. Like the, the streams I grew up in, you don't want to eat out of those. Right, right. And that's the other thing with all this poisoning. It's like now if you want to do it on the up and up, how do you know which one hasn't been ant poisoned to death? You know, <laughs> well, if, um, if there are browns living in it, you're probably pretty safe from what I like. Everything I read, it just wipes them out. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the other thing, too, I. I appreciate ingenuity in terms of like getting legal meals or harvesting more crabs or whatever it may be. But like, is this the only way you would think like, wasn't some, why isn't one of the old timers like hooked up a car battery and shocked him or something? Like, can't we figure something out like that? We have to poison the entire stream. Like my grandpa used to dig worms with a car battery and two electrodes, stick them in the ground, buzz them up, up come the worms. I'm like, that's ingenuity. You know what I mean? And we're not harming anything. Yeah. Anyway, it's, 
I, I'm with you. I think it's a really cool way of harvesting food. And uh, next time I'm on a neighbor island with cleaner water, I'm definitely going to do this because I, I, I think that'd be a, a lot of fun. I think I think it looks awesome. And you've given me the simplest transition because we're going from invasives to invasives. Uh, this yes. is a cool story, though, though it's a bit it's a bit complex. I'm going to do my best to break it down in an orderly fashion here. Uh, but it comes from Hakai Magazine, which is great. We hit I them love a that lot. Magazine. That's a really good magazine. Yeah. We highly recommend it. Uh, excellent writing. Uh, and it centers around the bloodworm trade. And I realize that bloodworms are not exactly a ubiquitous bait. They're actually a very niche bait used in saltwater. Uh, but if you're a Northeasterner like me from the Mid-Atlantic, you probably understand their importance. Um, so bloodworms are these big, ugly, mean-ass sea worms. They can be really long. They can be a foot long. They have legs that run down the side. It looks like uh, like, a, like a blood-red fringe. Um, and while you can use them for a wide variety of saltwater species, they are most commonly used, at least where I live, for stripers and white perch, particularly in the early season when the resident bass are just waking up because it's we have these fish in the back bays. They're not chasing bait all over. The water's cold, so they feed on the sand flats and the mud flats, and bloodworms are a choice bait. Very important. Now, these worms are primarily harvested in Maine and the Canadian Maritimes, and believe it or not, they are one of Maine's most valuable commercial fisheries. And according to really? the story, yes, in 2019, the worm trade in Maine was valued at north of $6 million total. Um, and what's so cool about it is the deep tradition tied to this worm harvest. They have to be dug by hand. You cannot use automated machinery, right? Um, you still can't dig for these worms on Sundays in Maine. And while this number has shrunk, it's estimated that there's still about 750 Mainers that dig worms at least part-time for supplemental income. And nowadays, the going rate for like a really big choice worm is about 60 cents per worm. Um, now, because these live worms, you know, don't live super long, this trade is all based around speed to market. Worms are dug, packed, and overnighted in most cases to bait shops across the country, which is why... A dozen of the damn things is so expensive. They are an insanely expensive bait. Especially what are we talking for a dozen? Oh man, you're gonna put me on the spot. It's been so long since I've. I, it's it's more than ten bucks a dozen. Maybe even up around fifteen bucks a dozen. Now. I mean, it would have to be if if the diggers are getting sixty cents, and then they got to get overnighted, and the the, the store's yeah, got to make profit exactly, on top of that. Exactly right. If you put all those factors together, plus now the story is saying supply and demand because of of you know the the pandemic pushing more people to fish, they can't keep up. And I know there was a bloodworm shortage around here this past spring. Um, you know, you can only dig so many by hand and truth be told, I only ever used them when I knew they'd be critical, right? Like, like we're doing this, we need to have blood worms or we're not going to be successful. It's not something I've, I've used much. You can catch fluke on them, sea bass, but they're just so damn expensive that, um, I've rarely ever done that. Now, when you buy these worms, they come packed in seaweed and it's a relatively common brown algae simply called wormweed. And to cut to the chase here, right, Amy Fowler, a marine biologist with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, has been studying this wormweed for, for years. This started in 2011. Uh, she's taken samples from bait shops, from suppliers, and it turns out that it's a major contributor to introducing invasive species to other bodies of water. And this wormweed that these worms come packed in is filled with microorganisms, and the, the most critical are periwinkle snails and green crabs. Um, and she believes 
those particular species ended up in several places that they should not be as a direct result of the bait trade. Furthermore, the wormweed itself can take hold and has done so in areas of both Chesapeake and San Francisco Bay because these main oh. worms are shipped all the way across the country, right? Because what happens, right? You finish with your worms, it's seaweed. You throw yeah, it yeah. in the water, right? Yeah. You, don't th you don't think anything of it. Um, now, I could go on and on about the invasives within the wormweed, but that's really not the most interesting part of the story. What's fascinating is that it's been proven that shipping bloodworms in wormweed provides no benefit. It doesn't make them live longer. They don't eat it, right? It just acts like this natural, moist, packing peanut material. Um, but distributors have skipped the weed in overnight shipments to Europe just to reduce weight just letting the worms roll around in styrofoam containers, and they survive just fine. Though it's kind of a day late and a buck short, California outlawed the importation of wormweed, and guess what? The worms headed there, now packed in wet cardboard strips or newspaper, and they right. do just fine. So it seems the simple solution is just stop packing the worms in wormweed, except the harvesting of the weed goes hand in hand with the traditional style of bloodworm harvesting in Maine. Like one guy who just harvests worm weed in this story says he gets about seven bucks a bag and can make 800 bucks on a good low tide, just collecting the weed for the worms to be packed in, right? The weed so, that doesn't actually serve any benefit. It serves no benefit. It doesn't keep, it serves really no benefit. So, um, a lot of the bait distributors in Maine are basically saying, like, like Fowler is passing on this information. She's talking to these guys. And a lot of them are just basically saying, like, yeah, sorry. This is how we've been doing it for decades. And um, I'm not going to risk putting anyone out of work, meaning the weed harvesters, by changing my ways. So even though Fowler suggests that while it may hurt the finances of, of a select group of, of Mainers, these weed collectors, the bait distributors would actually save money in the long run by switching to a different packing material or skipping it altogether. She also says, if you simply rinsed all the wormweed in fresh water before packing, it would get rid of a lot of these clinger honors. But there's, there's one distributor interviewed in the piece that says, uh, yeah, rinsing all the weed, that's just too onerous, time-consuming, <laughs> and contends and contends that the solution is educating anglers that buy worms not to discard the worm weed in the water. So to put the full responsibility on the, the buyer of the blood worm. Oh, I could not disagree with that more. Yeah. To me, that's, it's, it's plain that's as That's infuriating. And, and, and like, like I said, I, I've used blood worms. It's not something I buy a ton of, but as far as long as I can remember, you buy blood worms, they come in seaweed. Never thought anything of it. I threw that seaweed in the water. Never gave it a thought. You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's organic. Um, so, you know, Fowler was even saying in this piece, like a lot of times when you're trying to pinpoint where certain invasives are coming from, it takes so long to find the source. Like there's so much work put into the exact way that this thing got from here to here. And she's like, this one's plain as day. Like we could track it. Like these are all places that have this high use of bloodworms and the bloodworms are packed in this seaweed that gets discarded. But it just sounds like tradition is too strong. Nobody, nobody wants to listen. It's just like, nah, we're just gonna, we're gonna do that. That's what we do. Oh, that is that is maddening. <laughs> like, I wish that everyone could see my face right now because it's just like scrunched up yeah. in frustration. Yeah, because this is not a hard, as you were saying, this is not a hard problem to solve. It's not. It's not. And and there is there is one like I you know I sort of see a parallel. Believe it or not, you know you have these these old timey 
worm harvesting operations that have worked with, you know, this guy and that guy to collect all their weed for so long. I sort of see a parallel. I think New Jersey and Oregon are the last two states where it's um, illegal to pump your own gas. An attendant has to do that for you. And like for many, many years, it's like, can we just like save money and like we are happy to pump our own gas? But it's like, yeah, but just simply killing that would put so many people out of work. So I I sort of see the loyalty and the tradition there and not wanting their buddies and the people they've worked with forever to be out of a weed harvesting job. I get that too. Come on. Yeah, dude, I don't, I don't, that, that analogy doesn't work for me because there is no downside other than a slightly higher cost per gallon of fuel. Yeah, and this one you're talking about. We're transporting invasive species all over the country and the world, and all we have to do is stop doing this. It confers zero benefit other than a job. Like that to me is the definition of of having of creating a job that is detrimental and has no value. Yeah, and I'm not trying to hate on the weed harvesters out there. This yeah, is sure. Not a personal attack at any of you, but I think maybe you want to start getting into digging worms, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the way that you could transition. Uh, still, still similar, similar activity. It's, it seems, it, and it's. Did I tell you what? It is a nasty job, man. This is like a low tide window. You are, you know, balls deep in muck. Like it is hard yeah. work. You I know? believe it's, it. it's. It's. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day 
into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Here, here's the other thing I, I'm going to say. What by by putting this on? Let's say that the the onus is on anglers, right? Well, that's not actually going to fall on anglers because the way that the only way this really works is if now every other state where bloodworms are used for fishing has to create a regulation mm-hmm. whereby if you have bloodworm weed, you cannot dispose of it, and that's just another thing that yep. wardens have to now use their time looking out for, which they don't have the time or the resource to do, and they don't want to do. And yeah. that, that to me, is obnoxious when it could have been handled at the source. And, and that, that helps me kind of like continue my theme of the week, which is, which is calling out <laughs> game and wildlife enforcement officers in a positive light. Because you know, these, the, these are men and women who take a lot of shit. That, yes, oftentimes yes, they do. unfairly, and they rarely get credit for all, all the good work that they do. Right? Like they don't want to police your wormweed; they don't want to do that. <laughs> but they'll have to, perhaps, even though it could People have been are... solved elsewhere in the supply chain, right? And and yeah. I'm going to start this one. This is this, the actual story here is short and kind of dumb, but I like it anyway. But I'm going to start it off with with a story of my own. Uh, so the first time my wife and I took our son out on our boat. It was a beautiful June weekend a couple years ago. The kid was, was seven months old. We met up with some friends and their kids. We all launched our boat as a, at, a, at this busy river access point on the Madison. And, and our friends were out ahead just a little bit. And I, I just eased our 16-foot drift boat out of the current when I saw a warden waving me back over to the bank. And, you know, I complied immediately, as I always do. And, and I was not concerned. Right. I've, I've talked to lots of wardens. I've been checked many times. Sure. I pulled yeah. up next to the guy. Like I got all my paperwork. I got all my safety equipment. I'm, I'm legit. No problem. What do you, what do you need to see? But then he looks at me and he says, uh, sir, do you have a life jacket for that child? And I was just totally thrown. Cause I, I, I didn't the kid. Hmm. I mean, I, I, the kid wasn't even crawling yet. So the idea of him needing a life jacket, it simply hadn't crossed my mind, which was stupid. Because I knew the law, right? Like, I knew that all kids 12 and under have to wear a PFD at all times. I had to do that when I was guiding. But I just, I never thought about it with an infant who couldn't get away. I just didn't think right. about it, right? <laughs> so, like, I mean, blame just it on put him on the bow. He's not right, going anywhere. fine. I, blame it on yeah. a year and a half of sleep deprivation, whatever. <laughs> but I was utterly unprepared. And, and it being this beautiful weekend day, right? The ramp is super crowded. There are people everywhere. And the, the officer was understanding, but like, he kind of just, he's like, he was explaining like, God, I, I, I'm sorry, man, but like, I have to, I, I'm, I have to pay attention to this. I am. It's something that we're focusing on this year, particularly on this river is, is making sure kids are safe because we've had mm-hmm. some issues and, and which I get right. So he's like, I like, I can't, I can't just look the other way on this. And what he could have done was he could have told us, all right, I'm sorry, but you gotta, you're, you guys are out of here. You don't have a life jacket for that kid. Pull the boat back up, put it on the trailer, which would have been a really a really lame way to end my son's first ever float trip. It would have been a real disappointing day, and I would have been upset. My wife would have been, everybody would have been upset. But he, the guy he'd have gotten over it, though, if nothing else. He would have moved right on to other things, but, but that's not <laughs> what he did, and that's where I no, have I met, to I met your son. He wouldn't have remembered. Oh, no, he wouldn't have cared at all. No, he would have been like, <laughs> feed me and let me sleep and scream at you. Um, 
But the, the officer didn't do that, right? So instead, he went back to his truck and he pulled out an infant life jacket of his own and loaned it to my son so that we could legally complete our float. I'll say he did, he did also issue me a citation, but I chalked that up to the price <laughs> of stupidity on my part. Like, I deserved that. <laughs> the point is that, like, these aren't the stories that usually get told. Right, mm-hmm. the ones where wildlife officers go out of their way to help people are it, it. It's you usually hear the other ones, and in this case, I was breaking the law, and that dude had every right to just pull us off the river and go about his day, but he chose to loan us some of his personal property so that we could we could have fun and we could do what we're doing, and that's exactly what he did. And so that I thought of that because I just read this other story from the the local news on Lake Tuscaloosa in Alabama from last weekend. Tyler Cunningham took his girlfriend. Mackenzie Boyd out on his bass boat and he told her that he wanted to sneak in a little bit of fishing before they had to head out to a friend's house for a dinner party. So they hit the water dressed in their Sunday best, like fully ducked out to go bass fishing. Okay. All of a sudden, middle of the lake, Cunningham cuts the outboard, gets down on one knee, pulls out a rig and proposes to Boyd. Who's like Ugh. totally surprised? <laughs> I love I love your response there. Yeah. I give the dude yeah. credit because he he actually pulled off the surprise <laughs> part, and and you know she accepts everybody's happy. Blah blah blah. It's a, it's a touching moment, Sir Melly. Okay, but then on the way back to the ramp, the couple gets detained by state wildlife officers because they don't have life jackets or a fire extinguisher on board. Now, well, similarly by law. The officers could have issued a couple citations and that would have been the end of this story, but they didn't, they did it differently. They, they, they let the couple off with a warning, which I think is a nice thing to do for a a young couple who's probably broke. I know I was a young couple, but then they also used this event as an opportunity to do a little PR work. And this is what I think was pretty smart. The officers took photos with the couple and then they put up a Facebook post that I got to say is kind of clever. And so here's how it read quote, Quite an eventful boat ride on Lake Tuscaloosa for Mackenzie L. Boyd, who was first detained with a request for her hand in marriage, and then once again with requests for licenses and registration. Officers Stanley and Halloway (laughs) congratulate Mackenzie and her beau Tyler Cunningham and remind them that the secret to a long and successful life together includes life jackets and accessible fire extinguishers. Okay. I, I know this is this is kind of a cheesy story, and I get that. No, I, but, I have something to say, if you don't but say it I want to I want to give both the officers involved and the Alabama Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries Division a lot of credit for how they handled this. Because as we've already said, as I've mentioned, wardens generally have difficult, thankless jobs. And while there are always exceptions, the vast majority of the wardens that I've ever dealt with have been courteous and polite and professional. Yep, and me too. You you may get it. Yes, you may get annoyed at getting checked or or getting a citation for doing something accidental or stupid. I, I get that. But you got to remember that these are men and women. Their primary responsibility is to protect the fish and wildlife that we all really care about. And think about the sum total. Think about the good versus harm and think about how often like they have to deal with people being jerks to them. Yes. And, and and then take a, a step back and recognize that when they have these moments to like throw some levity in the situation, I, I think that is incredibly valuable and I love when they do it. And, and I thought that was very well handled. Here's what I will say, which, which just really goes back to the, to the couple, right? <laughs> I don't know, dude, I've had a lot of boats. I have boats. Now the life jackets are always in the boat. It's real easy. Like, 
they don't ever come out of the boat. The fire extinguisher doesn't come out of the boat. Like everything is always in the boat. Like that's like common sense to me. So when I hear people on larger boats that get hit for having no life jacket, I'm like, you, what do you take your life jackets on and off the boat every single, even if you wear, right? Like even if you wear the suspenders type, the comfortable mm-hmm. ones, yeah. I still have the shitty orange ones jammed in there to be up to code in case I forget the suspenders. So you're like, you're always legal. I don't understand that. I, that is I don't, I don't understand that either. Yeah. <laughs> Same on my boat. I'm, I'm with you. Well, so I, I'm going to close here with one uh, that um, no, no levity from fishing game officials uh, was warranted for this one. Uh, Cause it's, it's pretty ugly and there's really not a great punchline other than like, we're going to crunch some numbers here and you're going to be like, what? Right. So this one comes from Michigan's MLive.com. Headline, two Michigan men find $8,500 for poaching hundreds of walleye, panfish, and perch, right? Now, it's it's not that difficult to dig up a poaching we were story. really on theme this week. We are, I mean, like, we're all connected here. We are wow. one. We are locked in. Um, but I was going to say, it's not really that hard to find a poaching story on the local outdoor police blotter somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's always somebody doing yeah. something. But this one's pretty over the top. So this is from the story. In a single day in March, Stanley Garbaz Jr., 68 years old, of Caseville, and Bruce Warren, 53, of Pigeon, were allegedly over the perch daily catch limit by 60 fish. Authorities also found hundreds more walleye, panfish, and perch in Garbaz's freezer. The case began in March when the Department of Natural Resources received a tip on its report all poaching hotline. So there you go. If you ever scoffed at those and like don't think you should call, call. Okay, because here's, here's an example of where that worked. Um, advising that Garbaz was at his residence in possession of a few hundred perch. DNR Conservation Officer Josh Wright proceeded to the home and called the Huron County Sheriff's Office for assistance. Deputy Joshua Loss arrived first and confirmed that there was, quote, a lot, end quote, of perch being <laughs> filleted. <laughs> when Wright arrived, he received permission to count the fish that had been caught that day and were being processed by Garbers and Warren. He counted 170. They were each over the wow. daily catch limit by 60 perch. Wright then found an additional 85 bags of frozen fish in four freezers at Garbus's residence. The fillets were thawed and counted. Once everything was thawed and counted, it turned out Jude was over his possession limit by 35 walleye, 245 panfish, and 393 perch. My right? God. I, do, I mean, so this is my assessment. Short story, again, like there's, there's no quotes from these guys or anything, um, but on top of their fine, the combined fine of, of 8.5K, um, naturally, these men also face the loss of their licenses, you know, forever. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, you know, similar to my worry about the prawn deal, the, the loss of a fishing license w- will not necessarily stop these guys from fishing because... Like these violations to me are so egregious. I, I'm guessing that these two old timers basically give zero shits. Like if you're if you're one or two over the limit and try to be sneaky and you got caught, that's one thing. But if you're willing to go 393 perch over the limit, I'm I'm betting you don't actually care about the rules. You have not read the annual compendium. You probably never will. And I don't really think if like you can't get a license, you're not going to go out on the lake at night or or do what you're going to do. Just my assessment. Great bust. Like, good on them for for busting this one. 
Um, and again, similar to the Hawaii story. I mean, that's a hefty fine. They're, they're really trying to get after these dudes. But I always question, will it really matter in the end? I mean, it is. It is a hefty fine, but not compared to the $634,000. No. no. But if, I, if Phil is gauging just on fines, you have won. I totally Clearly. Won. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quick here. I don't understand why anybody, like I get eating fish, I get harvesting fish. Having that many fish, particularly freshwater fish in your freezer, doesn't make that much sense uh, to me. Yeah, uh, I don't. I, I, there's something going on there that I can't wrap my head around. I try to be, I try to be compassionate about like these people whose stories come up, but this one I, I really, I, I just struggle with. And to your other point, yeah, these all the fines here may not ever get paid. These people may not be able to, but I do think that having a story that puts the word out there that can dissuade other people totally. from making similar choices. And that's where, particularly with the, the prawn story, like, oh, shit, they can come after me for a half million dollars? Probably not worth <laughs> it to poison some, some prawns tonight. Um, but that you're, you're probably right. These individuals likely can't pay these fines and likely won't change their behavior. But hopefully it changes the behavior of many others who might otherwise make similar stupid choices. That's my hope. Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's always hard to... to uh you never really can seem to, f- to find the follow-up to these kinds of stories. Like, I always, you read them and you read, you know, the fines, but then there's never anything about whether dude actually ended up paying them. So yeah. we may never know. I don't know. We'll keep an eye out. Um, Phil's got a lot to ponder here. I think we, we did a good job, like you said, of staying just yeah. very on, on, man, just totally connective. So difficult job for Phil, our guest DJ of the week. We're going to hear from him. And then uh, we're going to do a little covering water with a, uh, a tarpon legend. We'll go full salty. Miles, I do not judge based on which one of your subjects procured the largest fine. I rate under three categories, spunk, sizzle, and SPF. And I think within those parameters, the winner is obvious. Joe Cermelli, congratulations. (laughs) Just for a glimpse behind the scenes, I sent Joe and Miles a big list of songs to choose from, and I did not hear a single word back. So I just assumed that they probably saw the Buddy Rich big band on there and uh, regretted asking me to contribute. And we're just going to pretend that it never happened. But no, thanks for including my songs, guys. Appreciate it. I can't wait to see what selections River Horse makes. I'm going in. Cover me, Porkins. I can hold it. Pull up! No, I'm all right. Wasting his valuable time with us today, we have infamous tarpon guide and photographer, David Mangum. What's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Good. Infamous. Infamous, huh? Yeah. Hmm, we'll see. Well, so so, so <laughs> I, 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 that was intentional, man. I used infamous to describe you because you've, uh, I don't know if you've earned or cultivated this this uh, this, this kind of reputation, right? Like Gosh, the I rumor mill, the rumor mill has it that you can be uh, abrasive, maybe? on the water is that is that legit did you like really deserve that or is well, it just really good uh, brand marketing i don't know i mean it i guess it depends whether you mean to the boats that are near me or to the people on my boat so uh the answers would be different but no uh you know i think uh when i was younger i was a little more abrasive but uh in my old age i've uh i've softened up let's say <laughs> how's that how's that work? i like that i think we all <laughs> mellow with age i, I know i do yeah a little bit We've asked you here to to do this this I guess you'd call it our version of an interview, but uh you know instead of like conducting a, a well thought out proper interview, we just blurt out a bunch of shit and see what you come back with. So Sweet. here's how it's gonna work. 
Joe's going to put two minutes on the clock, and then he and I are going to, we're going to like pepper you with rapid fire questions. The right. goal is to get through as many of these as we can in two minutes, which means you can't really think about it. You just, you just got to react. It's a, uh, I think I'd describe it as like a, a verbal Rorschach test. <laughs> First thing that so, comes to your head, just say it. Exactly. Got it. But in the spirit of fairness, we will give you one minute at the end to to like expand and elaborate on whichever answer you think is is most interesting or stupid. Sound good? Okay. Sure. All right, Joe, you ready? And clock is starting now. Roughly how many clients have you made cry in your career? Zero. Nice. Worst place you've ever been hooked? Uh, eyelid. Ooh. One sentence that describes how you feel about spoon flies. Uh, God, I don't even know. It's garbagey. <laughs> Finish, <laughs> Finish the sentence. I cringe whenever a client tells me they've um, got high expectations. <laughs> yes. There you go. The words that come out of your mouth when you see someone trout set on a tarpon. Bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> <laughs> What's the greatest tarpon destination outside of the U.S.? I'm going to have to go uh, Guinea-Bissau. Oh, okay. All right. Far flung. Florida man stories. Funny or annoying? Oh, God. Both. <laughs> Pivotal point in a tarpon fight people screw up most often. Boat side. Um, just too much bend in the rod. Okay. Greatest angler of all time. <sighs> Zane Gray. Ooh, Saved by the Bell or Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Fresh Prince. Yeah, nice. Black Flag, No Effects, or Blink 182? Black Flag. Oh, excellent. Yep. Name a bucket list species you haven't checked off your list yet. Ooh, uh, I'm going to have to go with. Black Marlin. Mm, okay. Yeah. Greatest fly ever invented. Spoonfly. No, kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe the maybe the toad. Gary Merriman's okay. toad. Okay, and we mm -hmm. have we have time for one last question here. Uh, chasing line class records. Cool or lame? Somewhere in between. Depends. There's a lot to do. There's a lot you have to answer with that question, but. Somewhere in between. It all depends on the person chasing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Right, I mean, we'll now you got you got your one <laughs> minute to elaborate. If that's the one you want to go on, you yeah, can pick any. Yeah. Of them. Well, I you know I think a lot of the difference between folks that chase line class records, um, you know, some folks that have been angling their whole life and have caught everything, and they're trying to make it more challenging. You know, they don't care if they catch that fish because they've already caught tons of them, so they challenge themselves by trying to do some line class records. You're doing line class records to try to make a big name for yourself, and you're starting out angling, and you start out doing it. It's garbage. We uh, we recently reviewed the the Monty Burke Lords of the Fly book that kind of goes through that 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 whole culture. I don't know if you read it, man, but it's it's a really good one. I have. I, I figured since you were in there. <laughs> so to each his own. I, I think is the is my feeling on it. I, I think. In some ways, it's great, uh, Chase and Line Class Records. In some ways, I don't know. I, I, I'm hot and cold on it, but I think I'm warming up to it a little more after you know the, the book and kind of looking into the hearts of some of those people to do it. So, David, we appreciate you, you taking the time to talk with us, man, and coming on here. Uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. 
So I've never actually hung out with Dave, mm, but we, we have yeah. we have quite a few mutual friends, but I've never like never had a beer with the guy. Mm-hmm. He's as you know, he's an icon in the saltwater fly fishing world, but he definitely has that reputation, like a longstanding reputation of being a hard ass, right? Oh, to- yeah, yeah, dude. I know people who fished with him back in the day. They were like scared, they were a little <laughs> bit scared, and I don't, I don't personally know him either. Uh, but supposedly. Supposedly, he's this super amped up hothead. Yeah, but that that was not the guy who showed up for our interview. No, I don't. No. I don't know. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if he's just mellowed out as he's gotten a little older, or he was just in a, like a chill mode because we caught him, you know, in the off season, not between crazy tarpon trips, or if he's just trying to like soften his public image, which is also a possibility. But he was not um, at all like the intimidating aggro dude that he's been made out to be. No, enjoyable. I feel like I feel yeah. like he's hired a, a PR consultant or something. Someone <laughs> to, to polish him up. You got you got an interview come up? Okay, here's what you got to do. Take yeah, three right. Valium, wash it down <laughs> with this. I I don't know. He wasn't he wasn't the he didn't show up anyway as as the image that he's been built up to be. And I don't know if I'm disappointed or if I was relieved about that. I was kind of ready right. for this edgy interview that was that was combative and it just wasn't like that at all. It was yeah. it was kind of tame actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe he's different when he hits the water, which would mean that he uh, has something in common with the classic fly you're going to tell us about in this week's end of the line, which also happens to be my favorite dry fly. Fishy, 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 fishy. Well, that's not loud enough, bird. One mid March years ago, a former fishing buddy and I skipped town for a few rain soaked days. The trip turned into an exercise in cognitive dissonance. Misery amid euphoria. Three days of steady downpour with temps that never crept above the low 40s. The air and water were nearly indistinguishable, being about the same temperature and saturation level. We set up camp in the rain, rendering our shelters wet from the start and leaving us no escape. No warm, cozy respite. So we just stayed on the river, from daylight to dusk, because... Though our bodies may have been damp and cold, we experienced three days of the most spectacular trout fishing either of us had ever seen, before or since. Insects emerged from the water in sheets, creating a near mirror image of the falling rain. And just about every trout settled at the surface with their mouths wide. The gray light and steady drizzle made them far less spooky than usual on this particular tailwater. And since the weather was more southeast Alaska than Fort Lauderdale, The spring break crowds were absent. We didn't quite have the place to ourselves, but with hoods up and eyes focused, we hardly saw another soul. The first morning, we set up in a long slick, covered in feeding fish. Two different insects were hatching. Tiny midges and just slightly larger, slate-colored mayflies called betas. The fish seemed to be alternating between bugs, so I kept switching flies. One fish would be focused on midges, while the fish just below it only wanted mayflies. Meanwhile, my buddy, standing just downstream, remained consistently hooked up without ever retying. I finally broke down while shivering and trying to thread hair-thin mono into a minuscule hook eye. Again. Dude, what are you using? An Adams. Size 20, he replied, rod still bent. Kind of looks like a midge cluster, kind of looks like a betus. I dug into my box tied on a size 20 Adams, and didn't change flies again for the rest of the trip, except when one got chewed beyond recognition 
or broken off by a big fish. If I could, I would rename the atoms the gray area. With a gray-dubbed body and some buggy hackle, it's the prototypical anything fly. You can find it in sizes that range from damn near invisible, like what we were fishing in that rainstorm hatch, to holy shit, is that a hummingbird? Depending on how it's tied, it can imitate midges, mayflies, caddis, even ants, and fool everything from the most naive backcountry opportunists to the most selective tailwater scrutinizers. The Adams was invented in Michigan in 1922. The story goes like this. Charles Adams, an attorney and avid fly angler who regularly traveled to Michigan to fish the famous Boardman River, found himself in a position familiar to almost anyone who trout fishes. He was on the Mayfield Pond one summer evening and found fish rising to some kind of insect that he could not identify or imitate. Now, Adams couldn't tie flies. He was your standard, relatively clueless, wealthy sport. So the next day, he went to local fly tire Leonard Halliday and described in broad and general terms the confounding bug. Halliday lashed golden pheasant feathers to a size 14 hook to create the tail, coarsely dubbed the body with gray wool yarn, and then made oversized wings and hackle from rooster neck feathers. Halliday handed the creation to Adams, who fished it the following day and reported incredible success. Being a humble Midwestern fella, Halliday decided to name the fly not after himself, but the man who commissioned it. Tellingly, Adams' initial success on the new fly didn't come on the pond where the mystery hatch actually went down. Instead, he proved its effectiveness on the nearby Boardman River, where the insects would almost certainly have been different, which makes the perfect origin story for this fly that can imitate just about anything. Also fittingly, the modern Adams in your fly box or local fly bins doesn't include a single one of those original materials from Halliday's invention. Over the past 90 years, the fly has transformed. What was once a bushy, oversized, and frankly kind of sloppy-looking fly morphed into a relatively sleek and sparse profile as American fly tying evolved. Unlike modern fly marketing, where a tire swaps out a single material and then claims to have invented a whole new pattern, the Adams evolved steadily, but completely, without ever losing its name. It became a collaborative pastiche of American fly tying tradition as a whole, with dozens of different innovators adding their own flair to it over the decades without demanding any credit. First, the golden pheasant tail changed to brown or grizzly hackle fibers sometime in the mid-1930s. Next to go was the wool yarn body, which has a tendency to absorb water and cause the fly to sink, replaced by much more buoyant muskrat fur. Then, the wings and hackle shifted to an upright Catskill style. Eventually, the fly lost most of its original form. Today's Adams sports a calf tail or poly yarn parachute instead of hackle tip wings and a synthetic dubbed body. The only attribute it shares with the original is the color, gray, a generic stand-in that can pass for just about anything. The Adams is a perfect reminder that profile and presentation matter more than exact representation when it comes to fly fishing. Cut off the tail, pick out the dubbing a little, and it looks like a caddis. Keep it sleek, and it can imitate just about any mayfly on the planet as long as you get the size right. Most of all, it's the perfect fly to use when you encounter a situation like the fly's namesake, Charles Adams did, 
on that Michigan pond in the early 20s. When fish are feeding on some kind of bug that you can't seem to identify, you don't need to text photos to some aquatic entomologist friend. Just grab an Adams of appropriate size and make a good cast. So that is all we have in the fly bin for you guys this week. Uh, we hope that we didn't piss off any of our Fly Furious listeners or our uh, glorious sponsors, 13 Fishing, who doesn't make fly rods but does make badass rods of many other kinds. Uh, but if we did anger you, take a deep breath, find your center, get a grip on that tapered leader, and cut about a foot off the butt end. Seek inner clarity on the reasons why you are chasing those line class records in the first place and reconnect with the whole family of flies named Adams. <laughs> nice. Nice. It's a mouthful. Uh, it was a whole lot, but I, I liked I liked the puns in that. And if you're struggling with your feelings about fly fishing or this episode or have any questions that we might be able to help with, drop us a line. Email us at bent at themeateater.com. Also, I just got to say, all of you out there, you've been kind of slacking on the awkward photos and the bar nominations yep. lately. For shame, been, for shame. Few and He's far right. between. We love those segments and they don't exist without your help. So send us what you got. Help us out. Yep. Keep them going. Yep. Please, please, please do. And don't forget to drop the Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast hashtags on the gram for additional chances to win stickers from us. And finally, keep in mind that most of us learn to fly fish on a neighborhood pond with a shitty second or third hand setup we bought cheap or stole from a family member. You don't need a trust fund and a frequent flyer account to have fun with the long run. Give it a shot. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.